Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Matthew Liebman from Movio. And I'm Simon Burton from Numero. What a great weekend to be Australian, Matthew. Well, every weekend's a great week to be Australian. Why especially this weekend? Australia beating New Zealand in the T20 Cricket World Cup final on Sunday morning, Los Angeles time. It was a huge highlight. Always good to, to get one over the Kiwis. They completely dominate Australia in rugby these days. But unfortunately, the, the, the All Blacks lost on the weekend as well to, to Ireland. So a uh, pretty rough weekend for the, the New Zealand sports fan. And I'll take great delight in rubbing it in with my Auckland-based colleagues over the coming days, maybe even the coming months. We'll see. Yeah, we'll narrow our, our rugby conversation to that match, but maybe turn our attention to the global box office. Yeah, why not? People are people still coming out to, to cinemas in droves, even with some of the uh, increasing numbers of, of COVID cases across Europe. Eternals led the global box office again this past weekend. Its running QM worldwide is now at $281 million, uh, with $162 million, or 58% of that, being made uh, in the international space. So the, the international drop this past weekend was about 49%, which I thought was a, a pretty good result, given the number of uh, not-so-flattering reviews that we've seen for the film thus far. No Time to Die crossed $700 million globally this past weekend. Um, and I think if we look at the balance of international grosses versus domestic on that film, we've got $560 million taken internationally, or 80% of the global gross, as I said, versus Eternals being at 58%. So just a real illustration of the, the international uh, nature of, of, of the Bond international box office grosses. Uh, Bond finally opened to Australia and New Zealand audiences this past weekend. Uh, in Australia, it took a gross of $11.2 million for the weekend, uh, right in line with Spectre, which took $11.3 million, and Skyfall, which took $12.3 million, both pre-pandemic. So uh, a really strong indication that the Australian audiences are happy to, to flock back to the back to the theatres. If we shift gears and have a look at the domestic market, uh, Eternals was still number one, taking $27 million, but experiencing a drop of 62%, uh, so slightly greater than the international drop. Our favourite big red dog, Clifford, finally got into to movie theatres. I did avoid getting to the uh, the theatres over the weekend with the with the kids. It was about uh, 85 degrees in LA on the weekend, so we took advantage of, of the sunshine, but we will get to the, the theatre pretty soon to see that. $22 million for the five days, $16 million for the three days, uh, which was certainly above the, the studio expectations around the, the $15 million mark. And it was available on Paramount Plus as well as in movie theatres over the weekend. Uh, I know last week we touched on James Bond, No Time to Die, being available in homes in North America from Tuesday uh, for the, the price of $19.99. Um, interestingly, this past weekend, the box office grosses remained pretty steady and only dropped 23%. Uh, despite it being available in the home. So a good result there. People still heading out to the theatres to, to catch No Time to Die. Yeah, and um, I guess the idea that it's at PVOD rates of 1999 US might have taken some of the edge off the home revenue and helped to bolster the, the out-of-home, the cinema revenue for that particular title compared to some of the others that we've seen on HBO Max and select Disney Plus titles that have come bundled with the streaming price. Yeah, absolutely. With regards to the new opener, Clifford, the Big Red Dog, Matthew, what did the, the audience results look like? 
Yeah, look, again, no surprises on the surface of it. It's played young as far as family films have gone. You've got Ron's Gone Wrong, uh, Adam's Family 2, Boss Baby 2, Frozen 2, a lot of twos in there. Wonder Park, Secret Life of Pets 2, uh, The Grinch and Paw Patrol are all the most similar films in terms of opening weekend overlap, so definitely skewing younger. And that's then reflected in the, the demographics. We're seeing almost one-third of the audience aged under 12 years, and um, about one-quarter of the audience being women aged 25 to 44, which again means that mums are, are shouldering the burden, taking the, the kids to the cinema, uh, not are, as many are open-minded as you looking to take your two there. It does remind me of a, a promotion that we've done back in the day where we've looked at uh, mums who maybe have taken their kids to a kids' film uh, and then targeted them with a more grown-up title to, to get back out to the cinema quickly. And I wonder, you know, with this run of films in particular, whether exhibitors have that opportunity to thank mum for bringing the kids along by motivating them to see a grown-up film with their friends or, or loved ones. Uh, just something to keep in mind from that promotional angle. We also saw the release of Belfast in the North American market. Uh, a lot of a lot of Academy Award buzz around this particular title, releasing on five hundred and eighty theaters to a gross of one point eight million US dollars. Uh, pretty solid result. Yeah, and look from a, a, an audience perspective, these are highly frequent moviegoers. Um, almost two thirds of them are visiting monthly on average, and a whopping twenty six percent are averaging weekly visits at the moment. So. These are the people who want to see every specialised title in particular that gets released. And that's reflected in the, the most similar opening weekend films. You've got French Dispatch, Spencer, Card Counter, Last Night in Soho, as well as slightly older ones like Brooklyn, The Favourite, Lady Bird and Phantom Thread. If the overlap indicates Oscar buzz, you can certainly see that Belfast's going to be there when the award season starts. We're also seeing that it skews older, which I guess isn't that surprising given the subject matter. 63% uh, of visitors were aged 55 plus. It was equally balanced between male and female, and often these sorts of films do skew a bit more female, so I thought that was interesting as well. Uh, but I think the other thing to keep in mind here is not just to play up the, the similar films being most recent releases, but knowing this is an audience, uh, a, a film that will be there for the uh, Oscars, is to find audiences that love Oscar films, um, not just the most recent overlaps, and pursue them to see whether you can draw them in in the subsequent weeks of that film's release. Great advice, Matt. Why don't we move on to this week's interview? Today's guest is Adam Posner, who's been a customer loyalty, rewards and retention specialist, I'd say guru, for over 27 years. Over this career, Adam's designed and deployed loyalty, reward and membership program strategies and member research for organisations operating in retail, shopping centres, financial services, travel and hospitality, leisure and entertainment, trade and education, right across the board. In 2007, Adam founded Directivity, a, direct, a data-driven marketing agency, and in 2017, he established the point of loyalty as a strategic customer loyalty consultancy. Adam's the author of For Love or Money, an annual customer loyalty and loyalty research report, which is now in its ninth edition for Australia and second edition for New Zealand. He also co-authored the book, Give Back to Get Back, Nine Steps to a Profitable Loyalty Program. Adam's regularly sought as an expert speaker at conferences and in the media. He can also regularly be heard in the Loyalty Podcast, which features global loyalty experts discussing the latest developments in the space. As you can hear from the introduction, I've really been looking forward to this conversation, Adam. Thank you very much for coming on the pod. Gee, it's a pleasure, Matthew, and thanks for the, the very kind words. Oh, my pleasure. 
Look, let's start at the very beginning. How do you define loyalty? Yeah, I think that's a really great place to start because I believe that the brands and businesses get a little bit confused between loyalty and a loyalty program. So loyalty is not a program. Loyalty is an outcome. And in a, in a, in a consumer setting or in a, in a business to consume in a commercial setting, loyalty are a set of behaviors and beliefs that uh, consumers or customers or members have towards a brand or a business. Um, and in our research study for Love or Money, which you, which you mentioned, we, we've been studying what I call the 11 dimensions of loyalty to a brand outside of a loyalty program. And I won't go through all 11 dimensions and people can find those on, on some of my studies. But in summary, from that five years of studying what loyalty is, I've defined it really as simply two dimensions, behavior and belief. And behavior is a transactional connection that you have with a brand. So you buy often, you purchase often, or in your case, the movies, you go to the movies often, whatever it is, it's fundamentally it's transactional. And then belief is an emotional, a love, a trust, and a recommendation. So, you know, you don't recommend people to go somewhere or buy something unless you've had a great experience or, you know, it meant something to you because, as you would know, um, it's your reputation on the line. So behavior and belief, it's the intersection of behavior and belief, and that's where pure loyalty sits, uh, when you've got people loving your brand and coming back often and spending more and then also telling others. That sounds like the bullseye. Is it also possible to be on one end of the spectrum for one of those parameters, say very high on the belief and not so much on the behavior and still be valuable? Um, or, or is it really that you need to get to the middle for it to be of particular value to you as a company in respect of your customers? Look, if you take the, if you look at, if you imagined a little sort of chart, you know, the four by four, and you have a belief on the one axis and, and behavior on the other, um, and you've got people on what I call high belief or high love, but low behavior, don't spend a lot. Well, let me put it back to you and let your audience think about this. You know, I love some brand and I'll, I'll say it. I love Apple. I absolutely love it. And I'll, I've just told you and a million people or however many of your audiences that I love the brand, but I don't buy everything and I don't queue up outside. And I certainly, if they had my data, they would know that I'm low on behavior. I don't spend a lot, but I'm high on belief and telling people and the value of earned referrals so people who've i've just told go buy that product go to those movies or whatever it is that's there's value in that so yes a great question because uh just because you have a high spender doesn't mean that they're telling everybody else and and and, and high in love so you you've got to look at the two dimensions together absolutely and it feels then almost like the way you've explained that the belief maybe is a little more important because if i spend a little bit on my self uh, for myself and don't tell anyone that's one person's revenue but if I spend a decent amount and tell 100 people and there's that amplification, it feels like advocacy maybe has the edge over the behavioral transactional side if I'm, if I'm a loudmouth person out in the world. Absolutely. No question. I mean, uh, there's this whole new, uh, what I would say in terms of measurement, you know, buying a customer and spending all that sort of outbound marketing, performance marketing, especially a first time customer is quite expensive. They all talk about, you know, you know, all the marketing and advertising to get to drive a first time customer. Uh, versus customers that you get from your your customers telling others that is a low cost to business it's like an earned cost rather than a bought cost and so these two kind of uh, the value of a customer is not only in terms of how much they spend but also how much they're amplifying I love your word to others because that's low cost if, if, if in fact no cost promotion 
So your, your study uh, for Love or Money has been looking at Australia for, for nine years and uh, on this side of the Tasman for the last couple. I don't imagine the rate of change is, if anything, accelerating. What key trends are you seeing in this space around uh, this part of the world and more globally as you look overseas? Let me start off with sort of local Australia, New Zealand. So for Love or Money in Australia has been tracking for nine years. So I've got some metrics that have followed uh, the love and, and attitude towards uh, loyalty programs specifically as well. You know, and if you look at the trends there, I'm seeing a lot in the change of how um, consumers interact with brands and businesses, especially in retail. Let's just let's just focus on that and that how digital interactions and uh, been more integrated into the mobile phone. And we all know that's the, the extension of our hands and, and our lives. Um, and so the digitization of that card link loyalty is very big and growing massively. And what that is, is integrating payments into your membership so that it's really a seamless tap go and get rewarded experience and you're seeing that in, in the world of in the likes of starbucks uh, overseas are really they they were they they integrated payments into their their app ages ago and now have started to explode into other currencies like cryptocurrencies into their app um, and air miles and so they really are in terms of internationally taking that whole payment integration piece in programs to a whole new level on the, on the crypto, we were talking offline a little bit about AMC's foray into crypto payments as well. So you're seeing this as a, a broader trend. You know, Starbucks might be the pioneer here, but you think that's going to go broader throughout the community? Well, I've got to be careful because I have something called confirmation bias. Wherever I see something called loyalty, rewards, payments, crypto, clearly that captures my attention. And so I've collected a number of case, uh, case studies and uh, use cases of brands in programs as well as in the wider sort of promotional sphere really getting into the world of crypto and it's actually becoming much more uh and i say cryptocurrency and also in the sort of digital tokens or, or nfts or non-fungible tokens so that whole that whole um different space is being used by or being used by brands not only in programs as another currency because you know the likes of mastercard are are, are buying into some platforms for that and then the big brands are, are now making them available. So my uh, confirmation bias is being proven um, uh, by the bigger brands actually offering their consumers a new way of paying. Are there other things that are out there at the moment, major trends that are, are piquing your interest? Uh, well, I was only going to comment on what's happening in from my little bit of research in New Zealand in terms of specific, because you asked me, uh, Australia, New Zealand. And look, it's early days there and Australia cons consumer and loyalty program versus the the Kiwi consumer and their loyalty programs. I think my opinion there is that you're at five odd million, uh, five or six million versus 25 odd million um, people in the country. And But New Zealand's also, New Zealanders love their loyalty programs. High, high take up. You know, I know you've got some big programs and some great programs, Smart, uh, Smart Field Flybys and a few others that people love and are very engaged in. So I'm seeing similar in terms of attitude. A little bit more, perhaps, because I haven't got so many trends, a little bit of a difference in terms of interaction, but otherwise very similar. Can you talk to me about the term joyalty, which I've heard you coin a little bit on some of your podcasts and blogs? Um, it, it caught my attention. I, I think it's a great one to introduce to the listeners. Uh, yeah, thank you for bringing that one. I do love the, the, the joyalty. And just with the absolutely reference, it came from a book called Brand Currency by Steve Susi, who, who worked at Amazon. But he didn't refer it to in in my in my world of loyalty programs. He's talking talked about it in a, in a different way, and people can read it. But I borrowed the term and, and I changed it and adapted it to loyalty programs and defined it as a, a moment or a series of moments of magic 
that your brand provides to a customer um, in their interaction. So it's, uh, in simple terms, it's a moment or a moment of magic that really lift that emotional connection, um, that, that have a quick rush of dopamine. And you're sort of, I get very passionate about it because it just brings joy, an absolute moment of joy to your customer. And it could be, you know, as I said, a series of events, but it works best in the old surprise and delight aspect. And, and interestingly, you know, a case in point could be really as simple as, you know, I'm getting a lot of brown boxes delivered to my door, as most of us are. Um, and you, instead of the old boring, you know, brown paper, when you open the box, there's a handwritten note from some brands, there's some a little box of chocolates or something little sweet. It sometimes can be the small things that give me joy. But also recently, Woolworths actually, and I'll, I'm talking about this a lot lately, is they've got something called the good card, which they've empowered their team uh, who pack and send out their online orders, the, the opportunity to write a little personal note, and they've got the data, and people love that. It just a small thing can bring joy. I'd be interested to hear how you think that can be informed. For me in cinema, there are a couple of moments that I can think of in, in just being a customer, and in a lot of ways, the person who tears the ticket and tells you which, which um, auditorium to go to has the opportunity to give that moment. I remember one time when I was over in the States, uh, I took the kids to go and see one of the Despicable Me films. And as I handed the tickets across, the um, woman who tore the tickets completely ignored me, but bent down at my young kids who might have been eight and five at the time and said, this is the best movie, you're going to have a great time. And as a parent, to see somebody pay attention to your kids, um, it just escalates the whole experience. And when I was in exhibition, we would try and talk to the point of sale operators and talk about the magic sentence, which is what's that one thing you can say that doesn't slow down the lines, but gives a, an element of, of your personality and a personal engagement between you and the customer. But that's kind of hard to do. A lot of the time when you look at the retail base, especially in cinema, you're talking about teenagers, there's a high turnover rate. Have you seen any tips or tricks on how you deliver that joyalty, that moment of authenticity when it's not necessarily in the DNA of the person who's working there and how you balance authenticity and process to do it regularly. Wow. That's, well, first of all, your examples were, were fantastic. And I was about to say, you know, isn't it amazing that one, that one little moment of them getting down a little bit lower and saying something to the kids that just, and what it did for you and for them is a moment of joyalty. So absolute beautiful example. And it's done through words and no cost, except I would say it's to your second point in your questions um, is about how do you systemize or how do you actually create, especially when, as you say, the high turnover of, of team members, that's those moments so that it seems like it's still uh, authentic and, and, and genuine rather than, you know, a tape recorder in the back of their head saying, oh, it's now it's time. So that's perhaps the, the harder part. Um, I think it's very much about the, obviously the onboarding of team members, the training and that, that aspect of empowerment and giving them examples uh, along with any mystery shopping or anything to, to validate that they are doing it because you've got to, if you set an expectation, you've got to then, you know, measure and report on it so that it, it's part of the, uh, of the process. So it's not easy, but obviously can be done. And, and um, you know, I just love your example because there is no cost to somebody saying something uh, to an audience, like you you said, without, as you said, slowing down the line, which is another great way of systemizing the process. So Simon, the interview might have seemed to have ended a little abruptly there, but there's a reason. Uh, my conversation with Adam 
was so deep and went into such great detail that we've decided to have our first bumper two-parter interview. So think of it as the Avengers. We're ending with the snap at the end of this episode. And in the week of December 6th, we'll play the conclusion, the end game of my interview with Adam. So to end today's particular episode, Simon, what can we look forward to next week, the weekend before Thanksgiving? Thanks, Matt. Looking forward to next week in the North American market, the weekend before Thanksgiving. We have Ghostbusters Afterlife releasing from the guys at Sony Pictures and also King Richard in wide release. Um, looking at the pre-sales from uh, from Ghostbusters Afterlife, tracking pretty much in line with No Time to Die, which we know released for $55 million in its opening weekend. And interestingly, looking back to the previous Ghostbusters instalment in 2016, uh, that released to $46 million. So tracking approximately 15%, 15 to 20% ahead of that one. And I have no doubt that the good word of mouth of Ghostbusters Afterlife will propel this one through the, the Thanksgiving weekend uh, and deliver some some additional strong Yeah, I guess uh, rightly or wrongly, the last instalment wasn't as beloved by fans. So maybe this current one, Afterlife, is, is starting a little bit before zero, a little below zero. But from what you've said as somebody who's seen it and from what I've heard on the buzz, um, that word of mouth should completely turn around any misgivings people might have around the franchise. Hey, look, in terms of the audiences, one of the things I found um, interesting about pre-release is just how dominating the male 35 to 44 age bracket is. They're more than double what you would expect for a pre-release audience at this point. And it's kind of a no-man's-land age group in some ways. They, Most of them were only a couple of years old when the first film came out, so they're not the retro crowd. And they're not kids who might be um, attracted by the, the Stranger Things casting and tone. It's almost like too young to be parents, too old to be the kids. It'll be interesting to see how that might morph as it gets closer to release and um, through that Thanksgiving week in particular. Righto. Well, uh, until next week, Matt. Been good chatting. I'll talk to you then. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world-leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Scenes podcast is produced by Grace Furness, edited by Patrick Hanna, with additional support from Ryan Preventure, Georgia Culverwell and Christine Rizzolo.